If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open with me this morning, hope uh, for the last time, hopefully not for the last, last time, but for the last time uh, here in this context with us together uh, to the book of Judges, uh, Judges chapter 17. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some Bibles in the back that you can use to follow along. There is no insert with the passage found on it, and so you'll need to have a Bible with you, and I'd encourage you uh, to grab one and to use one and to hold it in your lap uh, for these next few minutes as we walk through this passage of Scripture. We've come to the end of a long and hard, uh, at least hard for me, uh, uh, study of uh, the book of Judges. It's been a rewarding journey, I trust. Fifteen weeks delving into some of the darkest history in the life of God's people. And yet it's a book that has had much to teach us about ourselves and about the God that we serve and worship here this morning. Before I read the passage, I want to cue you into a couple things. Up until this point, we've had this familiar cycle uh, in the book of Judges. Um, begins with apostasy, with the people of God wandering away from Yahweh. That results in the oppression of God's people through some outward means, followed by Yahweh raising up some uh, surprising, right, some surprising, imperfect deliverer. We call those men and women judges to rescue his people from their enemies. That's been the pattern. That's been the cycle that we've seen now for week, weeks upon weeks upon weeks. Well, we don't find that here in chapters 17 through 21, here in the end portion of the book of Judges. We've left the major memorable figures, and we've gotten down just to normal folks, to everyday life in Israel during this time period. And we've left the enemies that God's people are faced with, the external enemies in the promised land, and now the author focuses on Israel's true enemy, themselves. Themselves. As one author helpfully described that I read this week, he says, the author of Judges here in these closing chapters holds up a mirror to Israel and says, look at yourself. This is, this is who you are. This is what you have become. And folks, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is, this is bad. This is really bad. <laughs> this is rock bottom for the people of God. And obviously there's a lot. I mean, this is a huge portion of Scripture, the largest portion I've ever tried to preach in one fell swoop. We could talk a lot about uh, we could talk about a lot in these chapters, historical details and movement. There's plenty of geography that we could talk about. There's textual issues we could delve into, but I don't want to go into any of that this morning. I want to forego the trees and take a step back and look at the forest. And I want to do that partly because there are clear themes running through these closing chapters in the book of Judges and bookending these stories 
that I want you to see, that I think the author wants you to see, that I think ultimately God wants you to see, that is the point of these closing chapters. That's the first reason. And the second reason is because, frankly, these closing chapters are rated R. They're rated R. And the Lord certainly wants us to remember these things, but there's no reason to dwell and to wallow in this depravity. And so I'm not going to read all five chapters. I told you that in an email. I encourage you to read these chapters in advance. I apologize to those of you who are visiting who, who weren't able to do that. But in this context, this is not something I normally do, not read the whole chapter, but in this context, particularly with our young ones present, I want to be careful. I want to be careful. And if you weren't able to read these chapters in advance, it's fine. I'm going to read chapters of each or portions of each chapter that will hopefully give you the flow of the story, the flow of the narrative, and will flesh out some of these big themes that we are going to study this morning. But I would encourage you, because we're going to be jumping around a lot, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open as we open up God's Word together. So I'm going to read, and I'm going to read some selected portions from chapters 17 through 21. Uh, as always, out of honor of God's holy Word, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I read. And I'll tell you where I'm going if you want to kind of jump down with me, uh, try to give you... Uh, time to do that. But listen as I read, starting in chapter 17 of Judges, we're going to start with verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Jumping down to verse 10. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in and the Levite was content to dwell with the man and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Jumping down to verse 27 of chapter 18. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. Verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in, that in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. 
Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to him to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Jumping down to verse 30. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And all the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And all the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, and I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me, surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. Verse 12. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. Verse 35. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Verse 48. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they had found in the towns that they found, they set on fire. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be no, that there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. And they said there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives his wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebonah. 
And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Amen. Thanks for bearing with me in that long reading. If you are totally confused, uh, don't stress out. Hopefully we're going to bring some clarity uh, to what we just heard, uh, to what I just read. I'm going to divide these five chapters, uh, 17 through 21, into two sections. We're going to first look at the contents of chapters 17 and 18, and then we're going to look at the contents of chapters 19 through 21. And then I'm going to add one more truth to sum up these pa- this passage and to really sum up the entirety of the book of Judges. So three truths for us this morning. And the first one is this. Without God as king, spiritual confusion reigns. Without God as king, spiritual confusion reigns. We live in a custom world, don't we? Custom this, custom that. It's really awesome in a lot of ways. I remember when our kids were young is when the whole build a bear thing started. And I thought that was so cool uh, that you could go to the mall, you could pick your shell of a bear or whatever animal you wanted, you could pick the noisemaker that you wanted, you could pick the kind of stuffing you wanted, fluffy stuffing or firm stuffing, you could pick what you wanted on his or her paw, you could then dress them after you sewed them up in all these custom clothes with a whole array of options custom teddy bears. I remember I was in San Diego a couple months ago with my son, and I've told you before uh, that I like watches, and I was at the Nixon watch store in Encinitas, California, and that you could do the same thing with watches. You pick your face, you pick your hands, you pick the movement that you want, you pick the case, you pick the strap, and you assemble it. It's a, it's a custom kind of world. We can make anything we want the way we like it. But here's the problem with our custom world, is that mentality sneaks itself in to the church. It sneaks itself in to our spirituality and to how we think about God. You've got your way of doing things, I've got mine. You've got your truth, I've got mine. You've got your God, I've got mine. You see, that's something of what is happening here in the book of Judges with Micah and his mom. And we've talked briefly about this story, Micah and his mom, way early in our study in the book of Judges. But let me rehash and summarize it very quickly. Micah uh, stole a bunch of silver from his mother, and his mother apparently uh, forgives him and then dedicates that silver to making an image out of it. 
Now, it's supposed to be an image of Yahweh. So it's not as bad as things could be, right? But we learn later in verse 5 that this image also joined an array of household gods that Micah had set up. And so Micah takes these idols, he ordains one of his sons, and he eventually hires a passing Levite, those who had been set aside for the work of the house of God, and he hires this Levite to be his personal priest. And all of these things certainly make his practice and his worship of Yahweh convenient and comfortable But the problem is, it's in direct violation of God's revelation when he said, don't even attempt to make an image of me, because it's impossible. Any image you make of me is wrong, because it is incomplete. And so God specifically prohibited this kind of thing, And not only that, but the Lord said, I will dwell in the tabernacle through the mediation of a priest. Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God determines his worship. God determines the place of his presence. But Micah and his mom have made a custom religion. And this custom religion then extends, as we continue to read the story, it extends beyond this one family to a whole tribe. See, the tribe of Dan, they find out that, hey, man, he's got a personal priest, and so they offer this priest a better gig, a better promotion. Hey, we got more people over here. We got more accolades for you. We got more compensation. It's an offer that this priest can't refuse. The Danites have determined that they don't need the house of God in Shiloh. They don't need to go there to meet with their God. It's so much easier if they just do it custom. You see, there exists in Israel spiritual confusion. And a spiritual confusion that our author gives the reason for. Because God, Yahweh, is not being acknowledged as king. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are here this morning who may be seeking the Lord or exploring Christianity, this this is the world that we live in. It's not all that far off from the context of that which we read. Of course, we've got our blatantly false views of who God is as expressed by other religions. Israel had that too. All around them were false gods and other religions. That confusion is easier to spot, right? It's it's easier to weed out. It's the subtle that is more dangerous. My God wouldn't do that. The God I believe in, uh, he wouldn't do that. I, I just can't believe in a God like that. Jesus didn't judge people. He wouldn't make demands on me like that. He, he wants me to be happy. Have you ever heard any of those phrases? 
And then the ultimate trump card that I've heard, the ultimate I want to shut this conversation down, well, I'm just, I'm at peace with it. I'm at peace with it. See, what all these statements that we hear in our context, in our world, what do these statements and those like them represent? They represent a reshaping of the image of God. Just like Micah and his mom did, just like the Danites did, instead of being formed by God and his revelation, we seek to fashion him in our own image. We seek to craft a God who is manageable, who is convenient, who is comfortable. And unfortunately, we've done this in the church. We've made the gospel in some corners of the church. We've made the gospel about our prosperity. And we've made worship about our individual experience and how I feel about it. But friends, we've got a a God who is bigger than our imaginations, who is bigger than our urges. We've been given a revelation that guides our worship, that guides our lives, and best of all, we've been given an image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1:15, he that is Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so while innovation and custom this and that might be great in our society, it's not so great in the church. We look to Jesus, we look to his word, we bow to its demands, we acknowledge his kingship. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about specifically this, our worship. Since Micah and his sin and his spiritual confusion was about his worship, I was thinking about our worship, thinking about our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which undergirds the work and worship here at this church. And I just want to read you chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession. I don't always do this, but this is part of our heritage. Chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 21, paragraph 1 says this, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good to all And is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. You see, these men way back understood, understood the temptation common to all of us. Israel had lost sight of their king They had replaced him with their own, which is essentially themselves. And here's the thing, a God of our own making, a God of our own imaginations is going to let us down. 
I was listening in the car this week to Rich Mullins and one of my favorite songs, which expresses this so well in one line. He says, surrender, don't, fits better in the song other than doesn't. Surrender doesn't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. I'd rather fight you for something that I don't really want than take what you give that I need. See, we need a God bigger than us. We need Jesus and his word. Will he offend at times? Absolutely. (laughs) He will. But will he disappoint? Will he ever let down? Never. So that's the first thing I want us to consider. Without God as king, spiritual confusion reigns. And the second is this. Without God as king, our sin creates chaos. Without God as king, our sin creates chaos. Chapters 19 through 21 are some of the absolute darkest chapters in all of the Bible. The restraints are taken off and we really see the depths of sin that God's people can descend to. And that's why God has it here. That's why God has preserved it for us because he wants us to remember this. And if you read it before, you recognize probably that all of these three chapters, they center around one tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Chapter 19 is about the sin and the guilt that happens in the tribe of Benjamin. Chapter 20 is about the destruction of Benjamin. And then chapter 21 is about the resulting sorrow over the destruction of Benjamin. Let me rehash the story for us real briefly before we ask what it means for us. Three miles north of Jerusalem, in the town of Gibeah, something grievous grievous is about to happen. A Levite, someone who is called to be a servant in the house of God, he goes to, receive, goes to retrieve his concubine who has been unfaithful to him. Well, there, ding, 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 there's our first red flag, that things are not right in Israel, that a Levite has a concubine, a woman who is not his wife. Well, he retrieves her. Through a series of circumstances, he ends up staying at his father-in-law's house for a time and then ends up eventually in the house of a stranger who offers him hospitality. But during the night, a gang of depraved men pound on the host's door asking that they might have their way with his guest. And in this extreme gesture of hospitality, unexplicably, this host offers his daughter instead. And the men refuse, and so the Levite, in order to save his own skin, throws the concubine out to this gang, the very concubine he came to the city to rescue and to speak tenderly to, apparently, sends her out to this gang and to a horrible, violating death. And that act is only trumped by his callousness the next morning at her condition, which is then in turn trumped again by this gruesome act of defiling her in her death. Rape, murder, 
Uh, Israel has hit an all-time low. This is, this is Sodom 2.0. In fact, those of you who know the scriptures know that this sounds a lot like Lot, like Genesis 19. Without God as king, sin creates chaos. But the story isn't over. After receiving these terrible packages in the mail, uh, the tribes of Israel unite, and they unite not to fight their enemies, which have been plaguing them for year upon year, but they unite to fight themselves, to bring the justice of the Lord on one of their own, on the Benjamites. And this creates more sorrow and more sin. They've wiped out all of the Benjamites except for 600 men, but the tribe will die with these 600 men. They can't build their families. Because the rest of Israel has already vowed that they will not give their daughters to any of the tribe of Benjamin for their actions and what they allowed to go on in their land. So what do they do? They take 400 women from Jabesh Gilead who didn't fight with Benjamin and they kidnap 200 more from the daughters of Shiloh. Okay, so that was like three chapters in a matter of seconds. But here's the bottom line. To avenge the violation, the horrible violation of one woman, they end up taking the freedom of 600 women. This is messed up. This is terrible. And there's no one to stop them. There's no authority but themselves. Chapter 17, verse 6 In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you get the point? Without God as king, sin creates chaos. And what do we do with this? What do we do with this mess of history? Well, we lament it for sure. But I'd like to challenge us that the things that we see here, there are glimpses of it in our own day and age. Let's start with the Levite and his concubine, the breakdown of marriage in our culture. Who cares? What is it even for? What does it even mean? It's just a contract with society for tax purposes, right? Sexual confusion and entitlement in our culture. Disregard for the preciousness of human life in our culture. I wasn't even looking for this. I was just reading the news and there was a headline from yesterday. Thousands of fetal remains found at home of former South Bend abortion doctor. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us. See, these are not political issues. This is Romans chapter 1. That's what's going on here. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here it is. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. You see, we in our day and age are increasingly living the lie. The lie that there is no creature that stands above all things. That we are not creatures that are subservient to the word of his power. My former professor Peter Jones has written a lot on this very passage, and I commend to you his little book called The Other World View, where he talks about two ways of looking at our world, and he calls them twoism versus oneism. Twoism is this creature creator distinction that there are two. There is a creature who upholds the word, upholds the universe by the word of his power and governs all things. And then there is us. But in our culture, in our day and age, increasingly is this oneism. This oneism that all is one and therefore distinctions ought to go away. And we're seeing it happen, aren't we? The distinction of, of roles, the distinction of genders, everything is becoming. One, because of a lie. A lie that there is no creator, that there is no king. So what's the answer to all this confusion and chaos? One word. The Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus. We need to acknowledge Jesus as king. We need to acknowledge Jesus as king. The answer is not in a president. It's not in new policies. It's not even in a unified Supreme Court. The answer is in the image of the invisible God, the one who took our darkness upon himself and swallowed it in his light, the one who sits at God's right hand, ruling and reigning even now. We need Jesus. And this whole book of Judges that we have spent 15 weeks in has been crying and longing for a better deliverer, a better Samson. And yes, an earthly king. And kings are coming. And they're going to be great. Kind of. Saul and David and Solomon but they're all going to fall short because we need one that will last. We need a word that can be trusted. We need Jesus. And much, much to the contrary of what our world says, his kingship is not harsh. It's not lording over us. We see the character of it even here. Even here in the book of Judges, 
we see grace. You see, Yahweh hasn't given up on his people. Look at verse 24 of the last chapter. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his own tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his own inheritance. To his own inheritance. See, the inheritance represents God's promise. God's promise to his people. Miraculously, Israel, in the midst of all of this stuff, they still remain. Yahweh has not consumed them. He has not written them off. But he has plans. So brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus Christ, this is our charge in light of the book of Judges. It's to look to the king, to live under his kingship, to show the world around us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, to show the world around us that he is what they need. We need Jesus to be our king, and make no mistake, he's king already. It's just a matter of time before the whole world knows it, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And until that, until that day that we pray for soon, salt, light, city on a hill, ambassadors for the king. That's what we're called to. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, it's a hard word. It's a hard story. It's a darkness that's hard to comprehend. And we may think in our pride that we will never get there, that we know better as a society, that we know better as a people. Oh, Father, may we not be so proud but may we be on guard. May we be watchful. May we be a people intentionally submitting to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Intentionally fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh, how we thank you that you you didn't give up on your people, that you don't give up on us. That your mercy and your grace is more than our failings. Oh, Father, may we be a people ever changed by that reality and by these truths that we've meditated on this morning. Oh, Holy Spirit, do your work in us I pray in the name of Jesus, amen.